Looking to gift your friends and family some tech this holiday season? Look no further than Target, the top tech gift HQ. Shop top tech from Microsoft Xbox, Facebook Oculus, Sony PlayStation, HP, and more at Target and level up the holidays. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political commentator for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, uh, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling company, or if you have any suggestions or ideas for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me on Twitter is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. Welcome to all of you watching me on Twitter or Periscope TV. Now everyone can watch the show by going to periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can also watch Deadline DC on Facebook by visiting tinyurl.com forward slash BB Facebook Live. Today we'll review the election results from last week and preview the prospects for Joe Biden presidency with John Nichols from The Nation and Janae Austin held from the Boston Globe. Our guest in this half hour is John Nichols, the national political correspondent for The Nation, home to tenacious muckraking, provocative commentary, and spirited debate about politics and culture. The Nation empowers readers to fight for justice and equality for all. John is also the author of a new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. His Twitter handle is Nichols Uprising. John, welcome to Deadline DC again. Thanks for joining us. I know you must be very busy in these crazy times. Uh, it is, even now, it is very hard uh, after the election to keep up with everything that's going on, but it's, it's a pleasure to be with you, Brad. Yeah, by the time you get off at the bottom of the hour, you'll be hours behind, probably. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Anyway, uh, let's start with this. Uh, a general question to start you off. Uh, what do the election results from last week uh, show about the mood of America in 2020? I think America is very agitated and very, very concerned. Um, it's a it, it is both a clearly focused agitation as regards the COVID-19 crisis uh, and the unemployment that extends from it. But at the same time, there's sort of a free-floating discomfort. Uh, if you look at the exit polls, uh, and if, frankly, you just look at the results in general, you find that uh, the country is clearly unsatisfied. The overall mass of people are clearly unsatisfied with the circumstance that they're in and the direction the country's headed. That 
points to a logical result, and that is the removal of the sitting president, and that's what we've had. We have seen the defeat of Donald Trump. By the same token, it didn't produce a clear national result. There's a lot of a lot of pushes and pulls on those numbers around the country. And I think the best way to understand it is that we live in a very complicated time where I think a tremendous number of people know that we need a change, but aren't necessarily confident that the change will occur. Well, uh, before we get to change, uh, let's talk about the past. Yeah. Uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, looks pretty solidly looked to be the next the 46th president of the United States. Uh, but uh, Donald Trump seems to be uh, resisting. Uh, the uh, Biden campaign is hard, is having a hard time reaching anybody in the Trump administration to talk about a transition procedure. Uh, the president is talking about uh, continuing to hold election uh, rallies, uh, even though the election is over. How is this going to play out over the next 71 days? Uh, you know, I, I assume Donald Trump is eventually going to leave the White House. But, uh, you know, how is Joe Biden going to make a transition uh, when the president and his administration are dragging their feet? It's a nightmare scenario, right? It's 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 a reminder that the American experiment has always been based on sort of a uh, of an agreement uh, between people who don't usually agree, right? At the end of the day, there was a core concept that eh, if you didn't get the most votes, you you bowed to that reality and handed off the office. Even Richard Nixon made the process easy for John Kennedy, as bad as Nixon was, and and so. Uh, what we see is that we're in another place here and we are in uncharted waters. But I, I think you say the next 71 days, it's absolutely appropriate to look at that longer timeline. But I think the next 72 hours, maybe 96 are what really matter. Trump did an attempt overnight and today to signal that he's going to fight this thing. He's going to fight it with everything he's got. He's made a couple of bold moves today. He fired the secretary of defense. He's is they're they're putting a lot of pressure on their staff to not look for new jobs, not to you know kind of begin that mass exit that occurs at the end of an administration. So they're trying desperately uh, to hold it together. But my sense is that by the end of this week, if Trump hasn't come up with a lot more than what he's got, and I mean massively more than what he's got, and I don't just mean on evidence to suggest there was fraud because there really isn't evidence there, but but I mean just to mobilize a response to this thing. Uh, I think he's going to become increasingly isolated. That does, with this guy who's so erratic, that's very problematic. It's not, it's not necessarily a healthy situation for the country. But I think that we will get more and more clarity over the next few days on whether he's got anything to hang his efforts to, to keep the office on. You know, I don't mean legitimate efforts. I mean anything at all. Um, then if he doesn't, and I don't think he does, then we're going to see that that complex situation. And, and Brad, you're enough of a student of history to know about this, of what you had in 74 with Nixon, where Barry Goldwater and other people went to Nixon and told him, you got to go. Now, Trump's a much harder person to talk to. Much, I'm not suggesting it's going to be easy. But uh, part of what they did, what Goldwater and the others did with Nixon was when they went to tell him he had to go, they didn't just talk to him. Everybody thinks it was some sort of deep conversation. No, they let it be known to the media that they were telling him he had to go, right? So everybody knew it was happening. And so this is really on McConnell. 
Kevin McCarthy and people like that, if they if they get to the point where they they take a stand, then I think it will be done and will will be in process for transition. If they don't, then they're more shameful figures than Trump himself. Well, you make a good point about back in 1960, uh, the Kennedy-Nixon election was very close. Uh, Nixon was very suspicious of the Democratic victories in Texas and Illinois uh, because of Lyndon Johnson and Richard Daley. Uh, but he decided that uh, he wasn't going to fight the results. He went on and uh, produced an orderly transition of power uh, to John Kennedy. Uh, not that Donald Trump cares or is a student of history. Yeah. Obviously, Nixon is a this is a bizarre thing to say, but Nixon is a far superior human to, to Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, there's many people who look back at Nixon and see him as one of the darker figures in American politics. But there are a couple of things that Nixon had that were significant, one of which may be relevant to where we're at. Number one, um, he was a more dignified figure for all of his flaws than Trump is. But number two, he had ambition. And that's where this all becomes fascinating. Nixon's ambition was to turn it around and run for president again. And, and he felt that to do that, he had to give uh, the process its some respect. Now, Trump, I think, also has ambition. And I, I, I am in the camp that believes Trump is running for president in 2024. I don't have any doubt of that whatsoever. And so, the, so for those who might want to talk him into accepting a transition, um, a huge part of their argument is, that it's better for you as regards 2024 if you, you know, you can fight, scream, yell, make it difficult, but ultimately accept it. Uh, because you understand that the second he walks out of the, the White House, uh, I think he, I, I would imagine that Trump would have a rally that night. He'd fly to Texas or wherever and have a rally. And, and I don't see him stopping at all. And there's a subtle reason for it, Brad. I think the Trumps have figured out that it's easier to make money doing politics than it is to do real estate. Yeah, well, to underscore your uh, comment, John, there are reports today uh, that while the president uh, is uh, making all sorts of noises about not leaving, he is telling some people privately that he does plan to run for another term in 2024. And whether uh, he can put together the pieces is a uh, whole nother discussion. We're going to be back with uh, more of Deadline DC uh, with John Nichols uh, after uh, we go to a break for our radio listeners. But we will continue the conversation with John Nichols of the nation uh, for our Periscope TV listeners. Uh, we're going to uh, discuss uh, what a Joe Biden administration might look like and might do when we get back to these messages. Uh, so we'll be back for our radio listeners after these messages. And for our Periscope TV listeners, please stick with us because we're not going anywhere. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Bannon, our guest in this half hour is John John Nichols, national political correspondent uh, for the nation. Uh, John, let's try this. I've been looking at the uh, exit polls, mm -hmm. and it seemed to me one of the obstacles uh, that hindered Joe Biden from running up a big uh, majority uh, 
was the fact that the number one issue on the minds of the voters uh, when they voted uh, last week uh, was the economy. Thirty five percent of the voters said their the economy was their big issue. Twenty one percent said racial justice and 17 percent said the pandemic. Now, by far, the economy was the big issue. Uh, Joe Biden won big majorities of people who voted on racial justice and pandemic. But if you looked at the popular issue, the economy, uh, Joe Biden did horribly. Um, among the 35 percent of the voters who picked the economy as their big issue, Donald Trump won 82 uh, to 17. Uh, so the economy uh, was the only thing and it almost kept Donald Trump afloat. Not quite, but almost. So with that in mind, what do the Democrats have to do uh, to get in the ball game on the economy? Because our performance on that issue was actually, you know, I hate to say it, but abysmal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, here's the reality. Um, Because we don't have a social welfare state in the U.S., people associate the economy with having a job from which they can get both, you know, the pay that they would require, but also the benefits that give them health care and a host of other things. And so uh, even in the midst of a pandemic, And even with incredibly pressing issues like the demand for racial justice, like uh, the the climate crisis, like so many other issues that that you brought up and and referenced, a tremendous number of people still go back to that concept. If, quote, if I've got a job, I can make it through. Right. I can I can, you know, deal with the rest of this if I've got a job. And so that confidence that you will have that you as a party, a political party, will create a will create jobs. And I don't mean just creating jobs through the government. I mean, also just in general, that there will be job growth. That's an absolutely critical thing. And I do not think the Democrats have done a good job on that. Uh, I, I, they had elements in their platform that's actually quite good, quite a lot of detail, but I don't think they played it out well. And I, I actually believe that um, the Democratic Party has yet to figure out how to talk about the moment that we are in uh, and a huge part of that is not just what the impact of COVID-19, which showed existing vulnerabilities, but also the reality of, of automation. We're, we're changing our workplaces radically, and we're not going to come back from the COVID crisis with the same kind of work that we went into it. And so, uh, to be honest, although I don't think he's a perfect messenger in every way, I'd probably put Andrew Yang in the administration someplace, because his thinking about this transition into that next economy is vital. I think Elizabeth Warren's thinking is good and a number of others. But um, this party needs to get its head wrapped around it. And they need to understand that the stimulus, now that they've got this power, they've got the presidency and they're going to fight for the Senate, that the stimulus actually has to be obviously, you know, you got to deal with any COVID care and all that, keep cities afloat, keep schools afloat, et cetera. But they, that's got to be, you know, substantially about jobs. And then right after stimulus, I think you have to go to an infrastructure plan. They're okay. not unrelated. Okay. Uh, there have been several, uh, at least a couple of meetings of the Democratic House Caucus. 
And essentially, the moderates in the Democratic caucus are basically uh, beating up on the progressives by saying that, well, you know, we ended up losing. Well, they lost at least half six House seats, maybe more than that. We didn't win the Senate. And it's all because that, uh, you know, of all this talk about socialism, uh, you know, what what do you say if you're a progressive within the caucus uh, about, uh, you know, how we need to keep fighting for the uh, Green New Deal and Medicare for all uh, when there's very little prospect either of those things are going to happen with the Republican strength in the Senate? Sure. It's hard to it's hard to talk about great big initiatives at a point when um, even small initiatives may get stopped by a Republican Senate. That's that's a, a, a fundamental political reality, which, by the way, I think a lot of the progressives well understand. But I do think this beating up on the progressives is uh, an incredibly tone deaf and, and kind of absurd uh, way of thinking, because it, you understand the big thing that they did get was the presidency. And so then you say, OK, well, how did they get the presidency? Was it because Joe Biden was the most brilliant candidate in history? The media folks that like to just look at personalities may want to say that. But I'll tell you something else. Uh, the progressives in Minneapolis, Ilhan Omar in Madison, Wisconsin, Mark Pocan in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Gwen Moore in Detroit, Rashida Tlaib in Philadelphia, a whole bunch of folks to Pittsburgh as well. Uh, and down in Atlanta, Stacey Abrams and others. These people brought huge crowds of voters to the polls. If you think Biden would have won Wisconsin, without the mobilization in Milwaukee and Madison by progressives, you're nuts. It wouldn't have happened. In Detroit, Detroit upped its turnout and upped its percentage for the Democrats in a profound way. That's a huge part of why they won Michigan. Same in Philadelphia. In Minneapolis, 100,000 more people voted in Hennepin County than in 2016, which was an incredibly high turnout election. So I, I think that the the party needs to certainly think about where its priorities are, where its messages are. Of course, there's a lot of shuffling and pushing and pulling. But what they have to understand is that a big part of why they got as far as they did was because many members of the Progressive Caucus threw in in a profound way to, to elect Joe Biden. Uh, John, one final uh, question. Uh, can uh, can Democrats win both Senate seats in Georgia, which would essentially give them control of the Senate with uh, uh, the new vice president, Kamala Harris, breaking the tie uh, to uh, push the Biden agenda forward? We have a piece in the nation this week on this exact issue. And Stacey Abrams, who's got a very good track record in Georgia of, of accomplishing amazing things and, and really being kind of at the heart of that, that boosting the turnout. Um, she says yes. And she says you got to put aside the old calculations that said runoffs were really bad for Democrats. And, and they Democrats have run, lost runoff elections in the past in Florida quite or in Georgia quite often. But she's arguing that there really is a new dynamic there and that uh, Democrats are much better prepared to do it. I still think it's a hard one. I don't I don't doubt that at all. I do think that the Democratic Party, all the things we've talked about with challenges with messaging and strategy, They've got to get their act together as well as they possibly can, and they have to deliver a clear, coherent message. They can't let the Georgia fight just be about personalities. It really has to be about what can be accomplished if Raphael Warnock, the pastor at Emmanuel Baptist, and, uh, and I'm sorry, uh, at uh, Ebenezer Baptist, 
uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock at Ebenezer Baptist and John Ossoff, uh, that these two people really can do the job. Okay. John, thanks very much for joining me again on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk to you soon. Uh, uh, and hopefully uh, soon, Donald Trump will be out of the White House. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon after these messages with our guest, columnist for the Boston Globe, Janae Off to Hell. Stay tuned. Until then, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we are going to continue our discussion about the election results and what they mean uh, for the prospects of Joe Biden's presidential administration. Here are my comments. Joe Biden's successful campaign against Donald Trump uh, to reach the White House was nasty, brutish, and long. His fight to save the nation after his inauguration will be even harder than that. The 46th president will confront a divided country beset by an unprecedented and complex set of difficulties. Election returns and exit polls revealed sharp differences between men and women uh, and minority Americans and white voters. The new president will immediately need to confront the ravages of the pandemic, rebuild the shattered economy and address the looming threat of climate change. His response to these challenges will be limited by a Republican Senate, a solidly conservative Republican conservative Supreme Court, unrelenting hostility from Trump supporters and differences within his own party between establishment and progressive Dems. But a Biden presidency at least gives us a chance to move the nation forward after four years of regression under Donald Trump. You can read the rest of this column and my take on the presidential race in the Hill every week. Just Google muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon. Today, we're going to discuss how Joe Biden can move the nation forward. Uh, our guest today is Janae Austin-Held. He is a culture columnist who covers identity and social justice through the, ends of, through the lens of culture and the arts. Sometimes this means writing about being black. Um, it means exploring both the pandemic and the coronavirus and uh, America's original pandemic racism. She joined the Globe as a culture writer in 2018. A graduate of Norfolk State University, Austin Hell was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard, where her studies focused on the intersection of art and justice. She previously worked at the Kansas City Star as the Kansas City Star culture columnist. You can follow her on Twitter, where her handle is Sincerely Janae. That's Sincerely J-E-N-E-E. -E. Janae, welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I also should uh, note for our readers that you're the uh, editor of a new feature in the Boston Globe, uh, uh, which I believe is called Beautiful Resistance, and we'll uh, ask you to talk about that during the half hour. Great. Thank you. I'm not the editor, but I did uh, create it. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's uh, start with this. Uh, as I said in my comments, Joe Biden's really going to have his hands full. Uh, he won, but he has all sorts of obstacles. Uh, 
the uh, Republican looks like, uh, barring what happened, you know, unless the Democrats sweep the doubleheader in Georgia on January 5th, he's going to have a uh, Republican Senate to deal with, which means Mitch McConnell. Uh, we have a conservative Supreme Court. Uh, it's going to his job. He's work, got his work cut out for us. So the first question I have before we get to that, I want, I want to ask you, what does the election of uh, Kamala Harris mean as vice president? Uh, she's she represents a number of historic firsts. She's the first uh, woman to serve as vice president. Uh, she is the first African-American to serve as vice president. She's the first Asian-American to serve as vice president. What does that mean for the nation? You know, I think. Kamala Harris, as a black woman um, of South Asian descent, as a woman of Jamaican descent, um, as a daughter of immigrants, as a, a woman from Oakland, a HBCU graduate, I went to a HBCU, so coming from a historically black college, I think, and coming from the oldest, most celebrated black sorority in our country, um, she does represent so many different people. Um, you know, I didn't expect to be as overjoyed as I was um, when they finally called it. And I think there is something to be said about feeling seen that way. Um, so I think it, it means progress, but also at what cost? Like, um, you know, I wrote a column the day after the election when we didn't know how this was gonna go saying, no matter who wins, America lost. Um, and I still feel that way. Like, I think this is a great, moment and we you know like dave Chappelle said on saturday we have to find the joy um so i i'm i celebrated on saturday too um i wore a t-shirt with her face on it like i i celebrate this and i think we need to have hope and joy but i also think there's a, a very stark reality here which you know it's amazing we have this woman who represents all these historic firsts but how are we going to support her how are we going, you know, I know that she worked to get here, so it's not the same as Meghan Markle marrying into the monarchy, but I want to point out that everyone thought Meghan Markle marrying into the monarchy was going to be this great change. She didn't upend the monarchy, the monarchy upended her. Like, yeah. it's not enough to see someone in a place of power. It's like, how are they going to support you know, how are they going to be supported? How are we going? The system is broken. When Obama became president, it didn't magically fix our issues. In fact, it brought racists from underground out, you know, to speak. It led to the Trump presidency. So I just don't want her to be looked at as black women so often are as like the spine of the country in which we walk all over and never feed. So I want to make sure that you know, we're supporting on the local level. How are we voting on the local level to support Kamala and Joe? How are, how is Joe supporting Kamala? And also, you know, Kamala is moderate. So is Joe. They're not like extremely liberal. <laughs> like no, they're not, no. vote. they're not extremely liberal. They ran against liberals in the Democratic exactly. presidential primary. They ran against the, the, the hardcore liberals. So it's a it's an interesting dynamic. It's like I'm very excited. I do feel seen, but also she's not as liberal as I am. She's not as liberal as I would like her to be. Um, we're gonna have to do a lot of work, and it's gonna require all hands on deck and all support on deck. Obama, you know, got into office and didn't have the support he needed on the local level to get support on the Hill. So I don't want that to happen again. 
you know, this can't be a win for optics. Like, as you pointed out, half the country voted for Trump. But like, this is a, this isn't just a divided country. This country is torn in many, many, many pieces. Well, let me ask you this question. It seems to me that Joe Biden is president. You know, we have we have a toxic racial culture, I think. I mean, if you look at what happened in the summer, uh, the killings of black Americans by police, I, I don't see any, you know, you have right wing demonstrators roaming the country now. We, we have a toxic racial culture and Joe Biden has to find a way to deal with that. Now, it seems to me there are two ways Joe Biden can do it. Uh, what he does uh, which, you know, requires cooperation with, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, probably, which is going to be hard. But it seems to me a president can also make a difference uh, in the way he talks to the nation. Now, Donald Trump has basically insulted every minority group we have in the United States. and We have a lot of them. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that by the Census Bureau has said estimated by 2044, which is only 24 years from now, uh, we're going to have uh, racial minorities will make up a majority in this nation. And it seems to me a, a president has to get the country moving forward to that reality. My question to you is, can Joe D Biden make a difference just in terms of the way he approaches racial minorities, you know, talking about the contributions that they've made to American society instead of just a president who insults them all the time. Does that make a big difference or not? I think language does make a difference. Like, I think, you know, Trump wasn't the cause. He was the effect. He was a side effect of a country that's literally rooted in supremacy. This country was built on a framework of racism and supremacy. And that's always been the case. Like when Obama became the president, he became the president of a supremacist system. So despite the fact that he wanted to cultivate change, it didn't change the fact that this country is what it is and the system operates how it operates. Um, Trump came along and kind of gave a megaphone to the everyday voices of racism that amplify the fact that the system, structurally the system is, is messed up. Um, so language matters. Like it does matter that Biden is not gonna fan the flames of division. He's not gonna attack um, black people, immigrant people, LGBTQ plus and disabled people, you know, anyone that disagrees with him, women, like Biden's not gonna do that. So that, that helps kind of put a bomb on wounds, but a bomb won't be enough because this isn't just about hurt feelings and verbal attacks. It's about making structural systemic change. Like policy is a love language. So it's like what kind of policies and bills and like actual structural changes um, is this new presidency gonna make to combat racism? Okay. Uh, our guest in this half hour of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon is Janae Osterheld, who is uh, writes on culture and politics for the Boston Globe. Uh, we have been discussing uh, the election results and changes uh, and the prospects for a Biden presidency. Uh, 
we're going to be back after these messages uh, for our radio listeners. We're going to continue this discussion with Janae with our Periscope TV listeners. Uh, so we hope our radio listeners stick with us. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. And if you are watching on Periscope TV, don't go anywhere because we're going to continue this discussion right away. Uh, and again, our guest is Janae Osterheld, who uh, is a columnist for the Boston Globe. Uh, radio listeners will be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon, and my guest in this half hour is Janae Austinheld, who is a columnist for the Boston Globe. Uh, Janae, let's talk about uh, the internal battle that's going to occur within the Democratic Party. Uh, we talked about in the previous segment uh, Joe Biden and his uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, were both vocal moderates uh, when they were both in the presidential race earlier in the year. In fact, they went out of their way to criticize uh, and be opposed to uh, progressive uh, initiatives. Medicare for all is a good example. Uh it's going to be a tough time for progressives because, as we said, Joe Biden, Biden, Harris are not they're more moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats. Uh, whatever they do is going to have to be run through the filter of a Senate that, you know, probably is going to be a Republican unless uh, uh, Democrats win both Senate runoffs in Georgia. Um, and, uh, I've talked to many progressives in the last couple of days who were down hard, downhearted and dispirited, uh, because, uh, they see the prospects for a green new deal and, uh, uh, Medicare for all slipping away. Uh, what words of encouragement can you offer progressives to keep fighting the good fight? You know, I would say to progressives, and I don't even think I have to say this to them because I think that they understand. I think I'm part of the part of the beautiful struggle in being a progressive is that you know that this is an uphill battle, and you know you've already been, you've already you've lived so long already in the struggle that you know it's not ever going to be an easy fix or a quick win. Um, you know, I look at someone like Angela Davis, who's literally been fighting this fight her whole life, and she's still out here, like, marching in the streets and, and, and giving panel discussions and fighting for liberation. So I don't think, you know, AOC or Ayanna Presley or any of the people pushing for, you know, the Green New Deal or, or any of these, you know, police defunding the police or in sweeping reforms are discouraged. I think that they understand that this type of fight takes resiliency and determination. Um, I more want to encourage the moderates and the rest of the Democratic Party to kind of bridge the divides they have within the party. And even with people who don't label themselves as, as Democrat, Democrats, but are about change, you know, people who don't believe in the two-party system, because there's a lot of people who voted who don't believe in a two-party system. And it's like, I think what's important is that um, the dominant part of the Democratic Party has to start thinking more inclusively and be more expansive. Um, and I do, I have hope that Kamala and, um, and Biden 
are open to that. Like, I don't feel like they are completely closed to that. I think already we've seen them moving, you know, just tinkering the needle a little bit forward. And I think that is why we have to be very aggressive on the local level and how, how we vote and who we vote to represent us, because that's how we make change happen. Okay. Let me ask you this. Uh, I've uh, looked at the exit polls uh, that were conducted last week. Uh, and I see a couple of troubling things in there. Uh, one of the things that they asked voters where they asked them essentially which issue was most important to them when they voted. Uh, number one at 35% was the economy. Uh, number two at 21% uh, was racial justice. Uh, number three was fighting the pandemic. Now, Joe Biden did extremely well among voters who were most concerned about racial justice and the pandemic. Unfortunately, that wasn't the most popular issue. It was the economy. Uh, and among the 35 percent of the voters who said that the economy was their big issue, uh, Donald Trump won those voters 82 to 18, which I saw and I was astounded by. Uh, so, you know, one of the questions I think progressives have is how do Democrats talk about, the, you know, a lot of people are suffering out there. Uh, they lost their jobs during the pandemic. Uh, we have record unemployment. A lot of the people who have jobs are just hanging on by their fingernails or in danger of slipping down the slippery slope of poverty. Uh, but despite that, uh, Donald Trump managed uh, to win convincingly who's about uh, among voters who said that the economy was their biggest concern. Uh, what should Democrats take away from that and what should they do? See, here's the thing about the economy and Trump. Like, I feel like I honestly feel as though Biden could say free health care for all, which we should have. Like, we absolutely should have free health care for all. I feel like he could say that. He could make massive transportation changes so that people have equitable access to transportation to get to work. There's all these things he could do financially. And I still feel like those people that placed the economy as number one would have voted for Trump because the thinker that equates Trump with a booming economy equates uh, money and power like capitalism and supremacy are married. So there's people who don't necessarily want free healthcare, who don't necessarily want um, free education, but they do want money and power. And Trump represents money and power because I don't think voting Trump for capitalistic reasons, for econ economic reasons works. Like all of the poor white people who continue to vote for him, he didn't help them. He didn't help them over the last four years. He didn't. I know. So why did they vote for him? For capitalists like the supremacy. It's not that they want these programs. It's not that they feel like they got any better. It's that they felt more powerful. And I don't know what the solve for that is. I do know that economically speaking, Biden, this, president, this new presidency is going to have to look at how they're going to have to address education. They're going to have to address health care. They're going to have to address housing in inequities. Like money is an issue. Money is an issue in America. Poverty is an issue. And, I, and it's not just poverty. When we talk about money, we often think about poverty. But it's it's people who are in the middle class who are also suffering, who are literally 
hanging on to their houses, uh, bleeding money, especially with everybody's kids at home and just things are different now, losing jobs, hours being restricted. Everybody's hurting right now. And it's the people who are the most poor, but also the people who are just outside of that, who are suffering very deeply. And we need like incredible economic changes. And Biden and Kamala in this in this new Congress are really going to have to institute structural change. Uh, let me ask you about this. Uh, one of the first things Joe Biden is going to have to do is pick a cabinet. Um, Joe Biden has promised that his cabinet will be racially diverse. Uh, one of the jobs he's going to need to fill, and it's an important job, we found out the hard way during the Trump administration was attorney general. Uh, there are reports today that uh, Doug Jones, uh, who is uh, currently um, soon to be about a, a former a Democratic U.S. senator from Alabama, um, is uh, one of the people that Biden is considering for attorney general uh, before he was elected, served one term as U.S. Senator from Alabama. Uh, in his previous career, he was a U.S. attorney. Uh, and as a U.S. attorney, he gained his reputation by uh, by uh, prosecuting belatedly uh, racial extremists in Alabama. Uh, what do you think about Doug Jones as an attorney general? And uh, do you have any other suggestions about uh, for a Biden cabinet? You know, I think that we we do need somebody who's going to be hard on and who's going to be able to call racism, racism and, and racism and active terrorism. So we need that. I have I'm not going to lie. I haven't given, given a whole ton of thought to it right now because I feel like we just escaped journalism hell week and, and national hell week. And it's not like we're out of the woods. We're still wrapping our heads around the, the life we're living. I would like to see Biden think very hard about putting some progressives um, on his cabinet. People, his cabinet needs to be inclusive um, and aggressive in a good way, not a bad aggressive, but he needs to get into some good trouble as John Lewis would have said. He really does. Like, I really hope that he thinks way beyond um, what he's seen in the past and what has worked in the past, and he's able to radically imagine the future. Um, I, when AOC talked to Estet over at the New York Times over the weekend, she talked about the division in the party and, and the need to listen. And I hope that Biden and Harris listen and, um, well, we'll find out soon. Uh, Janae, thanks us. Thanks very much for joining us today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we hope you can come back and we can talk about the hopeful progress of the Biden administration. Uh, that's all today for today, friends. Uh, thanks to my guest, John Nichols of The Nation and Janae Austin Held of the Boston Globe. I'm here Mondays at 3 o'clock, 3 p.m. Eastern time. If the Lord is willing, the creek don't rise, and if Trump doesn't declare martial law before he's out the door. This is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay safe, and stay sane. 
if you can. Don't drink the Clorox or the Kool-Aid. It didn't help Trump or the members of this cabinet, and it won't help you either. I'll see you next Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time for more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. If you're ready to be more productive and efficient in your mornings, listen up. Stop wasting time scrolling through endless articles online or getting lost in your email inbox trying to keep up with the day's news. Instead, listen to all the news you need in just about 10 minutes a day with the Newsworthy Podcast. Not only are we fast, we also focus on staying fair and factual. So if you want to be informed, not influenced, the Newsworthy is here for you. And because we cover a wide variety of stories, from politics to tech to even entertainment, it's not just the doom and gloom stuff. Never feel uninformed, overwhelmed, or annoyed by the news again. Listen to one of the fastest-growing daily news podcasts recommended by the likes of Harper's Bazaar and Podcast Magazine. In fact, Fast Company called the newsworthy 10 minutes of well-spent listening and said the tone is fair, effortless, friendly, and trustworthy. Simply search for The Newsworthy in your podcast app right now to subscribe and listen for free. Search for The Newsworthy to get fast, fair, fun news of the day with The Newsworthy. This holiday season, remember the families who've lost loved ones to COVID-19. Don't risk losing your loved ones. Stay vigilant. Make smart choices. Avoid indoor gatherings and wear a mask. Spread hope, not COVID. For tips, visit michigan.gov slash holiday2020. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.